This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Hey podcast fans, it's Rowan Leach here, Mixed Farming Advisor for Local Land Services. As you kick back over the holidays, we're excited to present the Seeds for Success Summer Series, a special crop of episodes all about drought management. In this series, we've gathered the best advice and stories from our past episodes, and we've focused on the challenges and strategies for farming during drought conditions. These insights are especially relevant now as we find ourselves on the cusp of another dry season. So let's get into it. First up, you'll hear from James Morse. James and his wife Sally run a cattle breeding and trading enterprise in central west New South Wales. During the drought, they completely destocked, which gave them time to consider what they wanted their farm to look like in the future. Jill Kelly spoke to James and Sally to ask how they made that difficult decision. We originally were a breeding operation and in its peak, sort of season wise we'd have sort of 500 um, breeders and followers on but since going through succession and the drought and stuff we totally destocked in September uh, 19 and we um, sold what we had left of the cows and calves and any sort of trade cattle we had we had locked up on on feed until pretty much March I think this year was when we sort of got out of everything because we decided they were too dear to own so we sold sold everything we had left and um we're looking at taking on adjustment cattle and things, but um, yeah, it just didn't sort of happen. So we've been happy enough to let our country just recover from the last 18 months, two years of drier conditions. And so the decision to destock the cows and the calves was that made after slogging it out and trying to feed everything for a while and forking out a lot of money, or was it done proactively? And was it how did it feel? Was it particularly heartbreaking? We'd managed things reasonably well the year before in that. Um, we got away without feeding our cows the previous year so we, I guess we had a little bit of, of money up our sleeve to feed the cows so um, but it just you know I guess I suppose it's 12 14 years that we'd been breeding these um, these cows up and and we'd had a fair bit of success in the teas um, land Jindalee feedlot trial and things like that we'd we'd won that a couple of times with progeny we'd won so we were basically back to second and third carvers and the heifers and and whatnot but um yeah it was just at the time when we made the decision it was I suppose it felt like there was a weight lifted off your shoulders when it came to actually loading them on the truck it was sort of a bit teary I suppose it could have been so there's sort of and that's what we said we could always start again if we really wanted to get back in into the breeding again like we've we achieved a fair bit in that time frame with our animals, and and like we we were always very, very hard on our um, on our females from a fertility point of view. Like the heifers that only get joined for 25 days, and the cows for six weeks, and things like that. So, you know, we we had a pretty fertile herd, and and drove them pretty hard. Like they worked for us, not we're working for them, so to speak. So, and so now it's rained. Um, you've had the ability and the opportunity to sow some crops and buy in some stock. So what's your focus now? 
So what's probably changed for us since since we've um, got rid of those cattle is is the whole succession thing with sales families gone through. So we're actually now um, probably by the time this goes to air, we'll we'll actually own Wongalee. So up until now, we've been leasing. So that's been a big mind shift and and the big thing that we're just going to have to start to manage cash flow better. So um, with our location, we've we've always said to ourselves. We're in the ideal location to, to trade livestock. We're pretty much halfway between Dubbo and Carcourt, two of the biggest sort of cattle selling centres in the state. Um, we're sort of halfway between the Riverina and the and, um, Liverpool Plains where there's a number of feedlots and stuff and pretty much halfway between Victoria and Queensland if you look at it like that. And we're, we're right on the highway. In terms of access to, to trucks and, and things like that, I think we've always told ourselves that we're more... Um, situated for a trading operation slash fattening operation so um, and it's just I guess not so much got our hand forced because of the drought but it was probably something we always knew we had to do and it it was just the the hand that forced it so. Have you always stuck to cattle or did sheep ever come into the equation? We did have sheep there for a while but we had foot rot issues down in this this country so I think the aim for us is traditionally the place has been set up for for just the large animals but Going forward, we're going to look at, at rejigging the sort of troughs and the infrastructure and stuff to be able to opportune trade sheep and, and maybe even look at the goats. And Our children have got a few uh, few little goats running around and I think there's a real opportunity with, with goats going forward, but you just got to keep those buggers in. Next up is Kieran McHugh, or Mac to his mates. Mac manages Peer Peer, which is just outside of Canamble. They largely focus on merino sheep and dryland cropping. Mac started at Peer Peer during the drought, and when he joined, the big question quickly became, how do we make this profitable? Jill Kelly asked Mac what it was like when he first arrived at Peer Peer. Turning up here three years ago was a barren place, very dry. Barren's probably the wrong word, it's just a very dry place. It didn't sort of show much. But there was massive potential. I've always turned up here at PP and, and understood the massive potential this place is going to have. For some reason, there's always been a vision this place is going to produce something really special and a lot of it. It just needed to be shaken up and, and really given the best chance it can. So what we set out to do is we originally, the farming area is a lot smaller, so we increased the capacity of the farming and looked at the sheep that was on here at the moment and really started putting pressure on those and tried to increase their profitability or just the general lambing percentages, their, their fleece weights, as well as making the sheep perform individually, not as a whole group, but making sure that every sheep that stays on the place here actually earns their spot to be here. So they were the two big things that we, we looked at. And then with being in the drought, we thought, how are we going to make this place profitable with the drought? And and it basically came down to that we had to be much more efficient in feeding, the way we are feeding, how much we are feeding. And so that came back to quantifying our numbers, quantifying how much grain we're buying in, making sure each individual sheep was in the right position to be fed and had every opportunity to, to produce a lamb. And that's no mean feat on a place of this size. How many ewes are we talking about? We were close to six, 7,000 there at one stage feeding, but where that location ran, we were sort of trailing out, running a feed cart out to 10Ks one way and 10Ks the other way. So that's it's two blokes, sometimes three or four, depending on what was going on, with feed carts going seven days a week, feeding sheep 
that becomes tiresome after a while, as well as putting hay, salt and lime, making sure all the animal's health was basically up to standard where it needed to be to perform. And so to take you back to September 2018, I think was, I think when the drought really started to bite, I remember some pretty sad days out here. Tell me about how weaning was done back then. Yeah, that was a pretty tough, tough couple of weeks there coming into weaning. We weren't sure all the hard work that we put in, how it was going to go. We had some pretty sad feed dumps. But we started off and started to wean. We had a rough idea what we were going to see, but we didn't actually have correct numbers at this time. And you were weaning pretty young, weren't you? Like those lambs were little. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were weaning weight sort of 15 kilos was our average for our ewes and 19 kilos was for our weathers. But we had lambs that were down to less than 12 kilos, sort of 8 kilos that were pulling off mum. Yeah, that takes some real management. Were you weaning them into confinement? We made some confinement yards. Yeah, we did. We made some yards around our sheep yards that were rough and ready. They were pretty wild, to be honest. Like there was steel posts, a bit of chicken wire, some shade cloth with some of the fancier pens, whereas others were basically just trail grain on the ground and hope that they survive and pick it up without too much other crap mixed in with it as well. But that's often what people find themselves doing in a drought, isn't it? Like making do and doing the best you can. And that's certainly what you guys are up to. Yeah, you do. And I think there's a bit of, you know, stigma about some partial companies that they've got all this money and they can just make do. Well, that wasn't the situation. We we went into it the same as everyone else, not really knowing when it was going to end this drought and didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. But we also wanted to make sure our sheep were right too. So there's a fine line there of going, let's go in and, and make sure the sheep are right, but also we don't want to invest a huge amount of money in something that wasn't potentially going to be here for a long time, if, so we thought. And so you pulled your lambs off. They were quite young. You were doing the best you can in the setup. You roughly pulled together. How did it go? Pretty wild, actually. We had sheep scattered all over the place. And then we thought, oh, well, we can go do this better, so we put them into laneways, made some more confinement pens in laneways, so we had ewes going everywhere, had lambs going everywhere. Had little lambs going everywhere, little lambs that were sick, a lot of good sheep that were were going well, so we thought, but really when we look back at it now, they weren't doing as well as what we hoped they were doing. And so what changes have you implemented since then? How does, how does your setup look today and how are you approaching weaning this year? I know it's rained, but tell me about what's happening out here now. Yeah, we had a massive mind shift, went and saw... A lot of producers who were sheep farmers, the same as us, in the district as well as out of the district and saw what they did. What I saw was the same situation that I saw, but what we took out of it was that we know we can do this better. So what we planned on doing was setting out and trying to put in a plan in place and setting up our ewes and our lambs to be better. So what we set about was building a feedlot, which is nothing flash. Like you've seen at Jill, it's nothing flash. You could have probably gone in and spent a few hundred thousand dollars and built an automated setup. Why did you build the functional setup? Can you describe it to me and tell me why you chose to build it the way you did? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's all it is, just a laneway with four pens either side. So we eight pens in total. Our pen size is 100 by 100, a trough in the middle. We've got self-feeders set up along the fence and a few trees. And that's basically what it, what it is. Like it's very simple. We looked at a lot of areas around their farm to for location but for us it just made it simple right next to the wool shed everything's there our silos our our grain handling facilities which is basically set up of a chaser bin and a couple of silos and augers was right there so that made location sort of the most obvious for us water ran right through the middle of this paddock where we decided to put it so we had no worries about trying to change water or pump water to it so that was easy just tea into it and way we had water it was just 
a really simple design that seems to work really well. We use self feeders to fill up our for our grain, which cuts down on, on labour. We have plastic troughs that we run around the fence that we use for induction, just bunks induction. 10 days on that, and then they switch them over to self-feeders and the way they go. I don't know why it works as simply as it does, but it's it just works. And you can do it with um, minimal labour? Yeah, we can do the whole lot. You can basically do the whole whole thing by yourself if you really wanted to. It's very simple. Mixing grain takes a little bit of time, but that's all part and parcel of it. There's no real scales. We just use time as as what we use to make our rations as closely as possible we don't have any scales we buy feed in in bulk bags to work out to help out with our ration we know how much grain goes through our augers on time just on on manufacturer specifications they tell you how much grains pumped through an auger at a certain time so we use that to help us out um, we don't even make enough grain to to make the mix to work on our favour so not trying to make uneven numbers or whatever it's going to do to make a mix we just fill it up and then what we have left over put in a separate silo so it's ready to go for next time and so your mix might be like a barley lupin mix is that what you're talking about yeah barley lupin and a a buffer pellet sort of thing yeah and do you crack your grain at all no we don't no we never seemed to even worry about cracking grain it was just put out and the ewes they did sort it but we just play around with the grain the more confident we got as the older lambs got we we played around with the grain and and put fibre in. Sometimes we took fibre out. We always got roused on by our local district vet to put the fibre back in. It's a long way to come out here to chop up dead sheep. <laughs> yeah, we got very good at killing sheep, unfortunately, but that was all part of the learning curve. And so while we're on the topic, might as well ask you, what um, animal health problems do you see out here running a setup like an intensive feeding in an early weaning situation? Yeah, we had everything. We had pink eye, we had coccidiosis, we had acidosis, we had pregtox out here with our used prior to lambing on grain, you name it. But things have improved since then. They have, yes. We've gotten very good at identifying animal health and know how to fix it on it earlier on as opposed to being in trouble with it. Yeah, well, even prevent it, I reckon. That's bad, eh? Yeah, see what's coming, see what potential hazards there are and, and offset it. Yeah, yeah, probably. no, exactly right, yeah. Yeah. Specifically now, so you've got your setup. It's quite simple, but it's really functional. I want to talk to you about how you came to the decision to wean prior to landmarking and why that was a success and, and how that's continued on. Normal practice tells you you've got to landmark and then put them back with mum and then wean them. We tried it, like everyone else. We were getting huge mortality losses from it, from landmarking to weaning. And why do you think that was? I think it's a combination of mismothering. Also think going through the drought and marking lambs and then putting them back and they have to one try and find mum two try and find the feed at the same time the feed dumps are a very busy place ewes get mixed up and as well as the combination them trying to get over marking as well i think there was a huge complications with uh, mismothering probably is the biggest thing i'd say and what sort of marking technique were you using we're just using rings on lambs we don't mules here at the moment, we have um, have issues with that, so we're trying to work out that. But we just basically ring ring tails and, and nuts and, and earmark, and that was really very, very simple. Like we tried to make it as simple as possible, very streamlined. We went to a lot of extent to try and make sure mismothering wasn't an issue, but with the, the drought being the way it was, I don't think we could have avoided it. A plus, having the losses on the feed dumps that we were having, which wasn't huge, but it's it wasn't ideal when you when you saw what you saw. You came to the conclusion that you were going to wean first, mark second. So talk me through how that works. Yeah, so we saw that as a um, 
a bit of a mind shift to change from weaning first and then marking second. One, it gave us time. We weren't pushed to a deadline to try and get these limbs marked before we had to wean them. The other thing too was it also gave us the option that the ewes and the lambs were also used to us being around with feed carts and things like that. So when it came time to actually wean them, they weren't frightened of us from hurting them as we seem to think of them getting them in, pulling them off their mums, marking them and then putting them back. Probably a very stressful time for the lambs. With them having weaned first and then dealing with this later, I think they're older and more mature and, and getting used to being handled in a different way. I don't think they're as, as scared or they just seem to be a lot more contented when we did it. So there's a huge, huge difference in, in mortality for us. Yeah, so you've really looked after animal welfare there and dropped your mortality as a result. Yeah, like I think our mortality was over 10% sort of thing from landmarking to weaning, whereas when we did it, Last year, for the first time, we were below 1%, so it's a massive change. Next, you'll hear from Elliot Shannon, who runs Tiona, which is northwest of Coonabarabran. Together with his wife, Kate, his father, Rob, and their four children, they run beef cows as well as trade cattle and winter cropping. During the last drought, they made the most of the small amount of rain they did receive. Callan Thompson asked Elliot about his property and how they managed during this dry period. We're a mixed farm operation. We're beef cattle, uh, some breeders, and predominantly trade cattle, and also a winter cropping operation. We run over about 4,200 acres, mixture of owned country and leased. 10 k's west of Bugledi? Yeah, it's about 10 k's west of Bugledi, yeah. yeah, in the top end of the Gurunawar Valley. Picturesque little place. I used to always say to my mother, it's a shame views can't pay bills, but it is a nice spot. We're generally a fairly safe area. We've been reasonably blessed with rain, even right throughout the drought. Like it's been, you know, we've a fair bit of deficits in rainfall, but we still have got rain. And, you know, on the cropping side of things, you know, I'm, I'm yet to miss a crop in the 20 odd years I've been farming. You know, there have been some pretty ordinary crops, but um, we still have crops. And, and even last year, we had. Crops are good enough to graze, at least, to keep that livestock enterprise ticking over and ticking over quite well. Being able to make use of that moisture and being prepared for it and having good fallows and things like that was probably pretty beneficial those last couple of years. Oh, absolute key to it. Rainfall is a very important part of farming. Like It's one part that I can't control, but there's a heck of a lot of other stuff that I can control through the fallow management sowing on time, um, sowing the right varieties for the soils, the conditions that we've got. So, yeah, I'd like to see it rain regularly and, and all the time. It's just a small part, also been a major part. You know, without rain, you, you, you are really in strife, but there's a lot I can do on, within my business to capitalise when it does rain. And, and if I've dropped the ball on some of those elements, which, which sometimes I do, you know, your, your fallow's a bit late or you've missed a fallow spray or got too dry, couldn't get over it quick enough, it does bite you in the bum a bit later down the track. Let's stay with Elliot for now because he had more great insights to share. During the chat, Elliot spoke about the differences between running a farm during a drought compared to running a farm in normal conditions. Here's what he had to say. I often think it's harder to make money or keep on top of things when things are good. Like during the drought, you, you're really monitoring everything. It can be easy to 
think, oh, you know, those stock are okay because there's plenty of feed, there's plenty of water. Back to your question of what have I done differently with a bit of pasture that's died out and paddocks that need a little bit of regenerating in the pasture phase, we've swung a bit more to cropping. We maintained our life, reasonable numbers of livestock numbers throughout the drought and this year around that March period when the market was hot, I thought, well, I'm going to have some of that money. I'll, you know, it'll pay for the effort that we, we put into the stock. And so our numbers are, are back probably more than they were during the drought. Yeah, we're a little bit heavier on the cropping. Hopefully that'll pay off. That's created a fair strain on cash flow and is just, just trying to balance that. So, Ellie, what do you think the opportunities are in our going forward? Yeah, I think it's an extremely exciting time in agriculture at the moment. The optimism, I think it's probably more than the seasonal break. Like, that certainly does help, but we feel like we're on the cusp of something pretty good like commodity prices are exceptional you know we all would like more money but you know, you're talking cattle prices you know high three bucks a kilo into the four dollars grain prices whilst they won't stay where they are but they're, they're still they're still quite attractive certainly if we can crack some yield and it's just a great industry to be in and just you know right through all through the drought so as I, I took the approach that it's my choice to be in farming it's not my right it's my choice and if I choose to do something differently, I, I can. It's my responsibility to look after my livestock. It's my responsibility to look after my land to the, to the best of my ability. I hope we haven't lost too many of the younger generations seeing the struggles with the drought. And there's no two ways about it. The drought's difficult. There's no fun in it. Like it, it. It's just tough. But there's always opportunities. Just got to look for it and try to, try to see the silver lining. I've come out of this with a mob of very young breeders. In the good seasons, you keep that old girl for another year. Oh, she'll she'll be right. It's easier to lose money when it's good than when it's when it's tough. You just coast. There's never a dull moment at Jared and Emma Amory's mixed farming enterprise. They've got six kids and six and a half thousand acres to stay on top of, so they're always pretty busy. Jared and Emma have lived through the drought before, and so they decided to handle this most recent one a little bit differently. Jill Kelly asked Jared what it was like for them. It has been challenging and I've never, I've been through drought, but that last drought in 1819, which I'm believing's over, was really, really severe. And it was quite taxing as well. Quite taxing on the bank account and on the brain. One thing that was really important to remember in the drought because the previous drought before I just remember working so hard so physically hard to compensate for the lack of funds that were getting out of the farm I was off farm working so hard and I remember a man that I respected a lot he had the guts to say to me Jared if you continue at this pace you're not going to enjoy your family and I just, I never forgot that. I never forgot that. That sort of hit me, hit me between the eyes. So this drought, I was fully aware. I was like, I don't care what happens to our bank account, my family comes first. So we always, we always did things together and we even went on a holiday. And I was like, how are we gonna go on this holiday? What are we gonna do? It sounds extravagant. So I looked at some crap house caravans and I was like, nah, this is not gonna work. 
So we found this absolutely awesome caravan for 38,000 bucks. We went on a five week holiday around up through Hellas Springs, climbed Ayers Rock, this is only less than a year ago. We got home, the week we got home, we sold it for $100 less than what we pay for it. Beauty. And it cost <laughs> us $2 a night in accommodation. So these were some of the lessons that I'd learned through the drought and some of the ways that we handled the family aspect and the mental drain of the drought. Yeah. And so you sold stock to allow you to do that so you didn't have to feed things at home. That's correct, Julian. And we have a policy that we generally abide by that says we have no stock on the farm come August. Because getting back to sheep trading, spring in sheep trading is the riskiest time to trade because it'll either go hugely up as we get a wet spring or hugely down in a dry spring and those variabilities are too risky for someone like myself to take on so I prefer to have them grazing on a crop that you could lock up and harvest for grain at the end. So we had no, virtually no sheep in the drought but we did have some sheep feed in the drought from failed crops so we did buy some very young class breeders, some young merino ewes and first cross ewes are only six, seven months of age because I thought to myself, if I can just run these ewes around, which only eat half the amount of a big ewe, when I get out the other side, it's gonna be a bit of a kickstarter to our business, which it was because it was only two weeks ago that we sold those crossbred ewes for $421 and the Merinos for $327, which was very helpful. So that's one way we managed the drought with the livestock. So you guys have got a fairly clear driving purpose in life to raise your kids on a farm. Does that influence your ability to succeed, do you think, like having that really clear drive? And do you think that's important when, you, when you're running a business, particularly one that's got so many variables like climate and rainfall and markets? I think that it's really important in life that if you've got a goal or a dream not to think that it's impossible because if you think it's impossible you will never attempt to achieve it. So that was one of my goals in life or one of my dreams and to get to this place where we're at now is like a dream come true. It's just like a dream come true and those nights when I was laying under a baler at 3am in the morning, you know, on New Year's Eve and while everyone else is doing something else, you're out there busting your guts, trying to, trying to you know, do the best you can to achieve your goal. It's, it was some of those goals that I've had from such a young boy that have driven Emma and I to get to this position that we're in today. Emma and I really love, and we think it's a God-given thing that we love to try to help other people as well. But you can't give if you don't already have. Well, I guess in terms of the word success, we consider that to be having a balanced life and having our priorities right with our family and not necessarily any more like 
in our younger days pushing so hard that you might not see Jared for two or three days or whatever when he's out the back of somewhere doing some job just so that we can get past this next thing but more now to spending more time with our kids and making sure that our family's prioritised. That's part of our story of our, yeah, our success and our farm, living on our farm is part of our family as well. So that's just an extra nice thing for us that we get to have our kids here as well and they love the lifestyle here. So it's all sort of a package deal. And last up, we have Andrew and Megan Young. They run Napier in the Warrumbungle Shire. Despite the drought being tough, it helped them to focus on what matters most, their parents and their son, Joseph. Callan Thompson sat down with Andrew and Megan and asked them to think back to the moment the drought broke. As soon as it started to rain, we went, okay, we've got a bit of a reprieve. Probably took six months before we sort of went, I think we might be out of drought and let ourselves I think there's relax. still a part of me that thinks that maybe this is just, you know, a brief spell, even though it's gone on for months. It, I'm just not convinced. But the thing that probably has shown up for me is the value of our relationship. Like, this is periphery, but it's how are we. It's the people in the business making sure that Joe's OK because Andrew's dad kept commenting that ever since Joe had come home, it had been tough. You've got to look after those people in the business. Like, at the end of the day, they're the ones that matter most. And looking after yourself, you can't change what is. Get someone to come in and feed your stock or whatever, or whatever needs to be done, but look after yourself. And I think that's fundamentally probably one of the most important things that probably has come out of the drought. It's us. Are we okay? Individually and together. Yeah. Yep. Actually, look, looking back, having time to think about that question, as soon as the opportunity came, we cut some more loose and hay to refill our shed. Mm. harvested a bit of digit seed and baled the straw and that's all been in the first three months of this year. I expected it to keep going. I thought we just had a bit of a flash in the pan but I've been wrong in the past. Looks like I'm wrong again but yeah I was utilising that so as I was ready to survive for a bit again. longer. Yeah. yeah, go again. Yeah. So that's it for today's episode. If you want to listen to the full interview with any of today's guests, you can find those links in the show notes. I'm Rowan Leach and I'll chat to you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events, and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.